93. Next up is Yanto Yan, an exploration of Hong Kong's Indian community. Perhaps some of the most well-known Indians here in Hong Kong are the Harililas, a large extended family of 60 people housed in two adjacent dwellings in Kowloon Tong. The Harililas arrived here at the beginning of the 20th century and have a fascinating history. I had the chance to speak with David Harilila, a prominent member of the family, who shared some of their history and his own personal story. That's what we'll look at today on Yanto Yan. David is proud to call himself a Chindian. He considers himself part Chinese and part Indian because he lives here in Hong Kong. I'm born in Hong Kong. I'm happy to be Indian, but I'm also happy to think that I am a Chindian. Because being born here, I think it's best, this is the place where I've made it all happen and where God has been good to me. And I think this is where I give back. So I have many Chinese friends and I'm proud to have them. And I, and I, and I like to think of myself as a Chindian because I think we shouldn't have barriers or borders. I think that's, that's totally against my philosophy on life. I love, uh, I love being international. And I think it's part, uh, very important to give back to society where, where God has blessed you. You said that this is where you made it all happen. So what is that that you made happen? I think it's important for, to create, to be a child or be a human being that doesn't depend on others to succeed. I, I was born at a time when I saw my father work very hard we weren't very rich. I remember being sharing a bed with my sister and my father and mother when I was young. And, and it affected me. I saw my father working extremely hard uh, and coming home exhausted, just trying to, to make things happen. So obviously, I don't know what it is, maybe the elder son's eldest son syndrome. I believe, obviously wanted to do everything for myself. I wanted to be loved and appreciated for what I can do. And my dad always says to me, many times, he says, David, of all my sons, you never asked me for anything. I so, say, yes, I do. I want, to be, I want to be number one in your heart. I want to be number one. I want to be loved the most, which even my kids always joke about me because I tell them the same thing uh, versus mom. So maybe just my ego. I just want to be loved and appreciated. And, I th- and if I love somebody, I don't want to give them any, any criteria or give them stress to work from. Why should they? You know, they, they've raised us. They looked after us. They've given us love. And when we are capable, we should be self, self-sufficient. And, and it's our turn to look after them. This is the way I believe, the way I've been raised. I think my sister and I are very much the same. My eldest sister, Mira, and I, I think very much have this philosophy. Was your dad, were your parents the first in the generation that came over to Hong Kong from Sindh? The first one to come to, to, to China or Hong Kong would be my grandfather. He, he was a very uh, gutsy individual who decided that he, he wasn't happy with life in India. I think you've read the story been quoted many times and he and decided to start a brand new life in, in, in Shanghai I believe and then moved on to Canton and then to Hong, down to Hong Kong. He died before I was born so I never, I never saw him. He died a year, I think a year before I was born. So your father was born in Hong Kong? No. All my uncles, uh, most of my uncles were born in Hyderabad Sin. I think my father and my uncle Harry, my father's George Haralila, my uncle's Harry Haralila 
and I think Peter were born in, in India. I'm not sure about the rest of them. Uh, there's six brothers, six Hadley brothers originally. So what do you remember seeing your dad work so hard at? I mean, in Hong Kong, we all know about the Harilila family, right? And maybe what we know is even cursory. We know there's a big house and there are lots of people who live there and we know it's a very successful family. But sort of help us dig a little deeper into that. I mean, you know, now I'm hearing for the first time that there was George and Peter and all these different people. So help us understand the intricacy of all that a little bit more. From what I gather, because I wasn't around, my grandfather was around, he was a very successful trader in, in China, and he extended credit to his buyers in Spain, and they finally defaulted. But prior to the, to, to the clients defaulting, my, uh, my father and my uncle, uncles were raised well, uh, which is something I didn't know, but I finally learned because I wasn't around, as I said. And then when my grandfather had to, was, was, when the clients didn't pay him, very honorable. He paid everybody off his debts. And so the kids had to start, which means my kids, I mean my uncles and my father at 11 years old, had to start working from scratch for other people. So I admire them. So, so that's how it started. Being the eldest boy in the family, my sister is a little older than me, uh, I remember. I remember living in an apartment in, in a flat where we all the families lived together. As you know, the Harry always lived together. It was in the first or second floor of a building on Peking Road. I remember very clearly, and I remember going to see a movie. It was a treat, 20 cents movie in those days. So I remember that. I remember how hard my dad worked. I never saw him. That's why I loved him. When he came home, I'd hug him to death. Uh, my father was, was and remains my idol, and, and definitely uh, the person I strive to hope, hopefully be. So did he create sort of a separate business, if you will, from his brothers, or was it, was, were they all working towards the same thing? Absolutely. The Haralina family has always worked together, lived together, gone up and down together, and that is the strength of the family. The challenge, I think, that, that faces us today is my generation, me and my cousins, because maybe because of my individuality, I wanted to, to build my own business, to prove to my family that I'm capable. I think that's very important to me, and I try to pass on that same kind of uh, entrepreneurship quality to my kids. I mean, I don't think I spoiled them, Somebody, maybe somebody who might say that, but I don't think so. I'm very tough on them because I want them to be the best they can be. And I believe they should not be a burden to anybody because no matter how much money I leave them, I believe that money evaporates. If you don't know how to make money, you can hold on to it. So I want to create kids that are beneficial and can help the world. You mentioned that the Harililas have always lived together, worked together, gone up and down together. Was that just by chance? Was it intentional? I think it's definitely intentional. Uh, the up and down is, is by, is by uh, destiny or, or karma, whatever you want to call it. But my grandmother, because I can't remember my grandfather, he was a very powerful person. I heard stories about him, but I have no, no recollection of him. My grandmother, I'm named after her. I was a favorite, and, and she gave me my name. David? Davidas is my actual name, and which was anglicized to David. So I was very close to her. I used to, I used to love the stories she used to tell of how the, 
how the six brothers were always close and pre protected each other, how they worked hard to, to, to support the family. And she was not only the spiritual, she was the spiritual head, and she, and, and she controlled everybody with love, I think. And she made them all promise, uh, every one of them, but I think more the elder brothers, which is my father George and my uncle Harry, that they should never split and always work together, no matter what, as a family. And, and the family has tried to do that. And I believe that uh, the two pivotal members of the family, as far as building the business and keeping the family together, is my father and, and Dr. Harry, who worked the hardest. And I, and I refer to them, my Uncle Harry, as the cement. And I refer to my father, sorry, my Uncle Harry as the bricks and my father as the cement that keeps the glue together. And I think they've made a promise to, to my grandmother that they would do so. And I haven't made a promise to my father, but I've made an invisible promise internally that I would do my best to keep it together. The challenge remains that, you know, this generation, me and my cousins have not worked together. We've not seen pain and glory. You know what I'm saying? Together. The challenge remains because, you know, one generation builds, one generation ho hopefully will continue to build. And I, and I hopefully we have that vision. But my vision is never, never, never going to be strong enough if the other five cousins don't believe in me because the board is made up of one person from each family heart so pure he's like a child a gift from God to all mankind never a bad word for anyone he loves the old and he loves the young I think my father and uncle Tadov is trading trading and, and supplying goods to the British Army and they gave a very fair price versus, even though we weren't Chinese but they, they gave a fair price I think maybe maybe the Chinese marked up a little bit more I don't know, the competitors uh, but they got the business and maybe maybe the fluency of speaking in English maybe that was a big factor so they got into that business they got into dealing with the Europeans the Americans that were here and during WW2 and, and, and after in Vietnam and like the, my father started the, the major business that the, that, that the initial brought the money in, which was tailoring. And we were well known as uh, tailors. And our slogan was, Where Quality Reigns. And I still love that logo. Uh, it's been changed by part of the family, but I think it's important to where we came from and, and appreciate where we came from and appreciate where we're going to be. So that is how my family built it. It started off with the tailoring. And we brought in so many of our own competitors, the people we hired, branched off. So I think my uncle had the vision, Dr. Harry had the vision to take the money that we had and to and to branch out from tailoring to becoming landlords and, and, and delving into the hotel industry. And that's where the Haralila made the big turn forward. Did you actually have tailoring shops at the time? Yes, we had four major shops in Chimsacho, if I remember correctly. All in Chimsacho, yeah. So those don't exist anymore, though? No, we have no retail. We had a, we had a small store which kept for many years. But it's, 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 it's now been closed for several years. I'm not sure how many, maybe five, six years. We try to be sentimental, but the business is, is not the same. You know what I'm saying? You have to really you have to concentrate. You have to, be a, you have to be expert in everything you do. I think it was very nice of the family to try to keep that vision together in, in, in honor. But I think with rent, rents and the way things are today, I think it's a business that, that is not, not, not for the future. So then, David, tell me about what you did. Was that to then build the hotel business? No, you know, when I came back from, uh, I'm the first Harley to ever go to college. I had to fight with my parents to do that. My uncle, nobody understood that. If, if you're successful on your own and you've done it, and if I'm as good as 
as as as they they think I am by their standards, they couldn't understand why I took university. Okay, so I went to university because I felt I was fascinated by the West. I was a musician. I wanted to see the music, but I also wanted to bring a, a, another element to the family. Hopefully, uh, more educated. Hopefully, better trained for the future of business. So I actually argued for that, and I'm the first Haralila to ever go to university. And since then, I've opened the bridge for many, many Haralilas of the next generation and this generation, and probably the third generation after me to continue to go to university. Now I can imagine how contentious that must have been, because not only did you go to the West, but you went to the U.S., yep. not the U.K., and not just that, you went to California which as far as uh, I think the Indian and Chinese families at the time w were concerned was very out there, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Los Angeles, I went to Los Angeles because, first of all, the weather. Why would I go to East Coast? And actually, we met, I met a professor. In, in one of, you know, our family is very social. And I met a professor in, uh, from Stanford. And I heard of Stanford. I wanted to go to Stanford. And I said, I'd like to apply. Now, don't forget, this is 1969 when business was, when, when, when the British system was not recognized in America at all, and not many people were going to the United States. We didn't understand the system. I actually could have finished lower six and gone to America. I didn't even know that. I finished upper six and the option to go to America, study, or I had the option to be, to join Hong Kong U. I was accepted by the law department of Hong Kong U. But I, like I said, I wanted to go. I'm a very gutsy guy, I must tell you that. I fear nobody except God losing money and my wife, and, and probably in that order. So I love to try different things. I love to do different things. Otherwise, I wouldn't be a musician. So I went to the States, and I decided, let me, let me learn. Let me see if I can bring, be an asset. I worked for my dad for a long time. I was frustrated be, 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 uh, be, uh, with the decision of when I came back from university, should I sing? Why did I do quit music? Should I do business? Anyway, I took a test, at, and, and uh, I don't know what they call it, some sort of aptitude test, and, and it showed... And the guy said to me, so what was it that you were thinking about? He said, you're 100% businessman. So what was the other thing you were talking about? I said, musician. He said, in the test, there's not an inkling of being a musician. So at that moment, I felt rested that I made the right decision. I came back to Hong Kong, and my dad had a big business, and my uncle had a business. They said, my uncle said, you come to work for me, but you cannot say anything for two years. Uh, so I, that was, uh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, sort of accept that. I can understand because I think I, everybody thinks we know it all when you come out of university, I guess. So it, it was uh, something that was restrictive, and I loved my father anyway. So even though the hotel was a bigger cake, I joined the dad's retail and trading business, which was actually going downhill, uh, or slowing down. I won't say down, but slowing down. Um, but I did that because I loved my dad, and I wanted to work with him. So I joined my father for many years, and I did exactly what we want. The problem was my father and I never agreed on how to run the business. And I used to argue with them. I love the man the most in the world, but I argue with them because I felt we we're going in the wrong direction. But being a typical Cindy obedient son, I would always do things this way, even when I disagreed. Unlike my kids, okay? But anyway, I always did whatever, whatever dad wanted, uh, hoping that one day that he would understand that I was trying to protect him and make the business stronger. My dad's the nicest man in the world. He'd give money to a thief, to a crook, to anybody. He's just so benevolent, I can't explain. Uh, explain to you uh, in, in the song that I wrote for, for I wrote a song for my father called Daddy Oh Daddy and that song I wrote I think for his 50th wedding anniversary or 50th I can't even remember it's been so long but it's a song that I hope everybody would I would give it I've given it to anybody to use because I would never ask for any royalties because I hope everybody would love their father as much as I love him Daddy Daddy we love you Mama, Mama. 
goes priest or thief to, to my dad they're all equal it doesn't matter he treats everybody he really does his philosophy is always an open door anybody can walk in and he always says like my grandmother has taught him I guess too that even your enemy comes to your door you let him come in you give him a glass of water you give him the time and then you decide what to do my father would do that and probably give him money anyway and, and that was the that was the problem I had with my father I was trying to protect him and, and yet I understood uh I'll tell you a story one time which really, really, uh, really frustrated me because I always tried to protect him because anybody with the orange gown who came to this house, came to my dad's office, would walk off with 10, 15, 20,000 or more in donations. This is going back a long time ago. But that was very generous. He just believed in helping anybody. You could walk on a sob story and say you're a priest and you'll get something for sure. So they kept trucking in and trucking out. And I, I couldn't say anything because I didn't want to get involved because I, 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 I think we should do charity but a different way maybe, you know. My dad was just anybody and everybody where we are more, we like to think more concentrated or, or, or more focused. So one day this priest came and he looked like a real thug. He looked like a real, I mean, you know, anybody could see the man was a, was a, was a, was a trickster, you know. Anyway, he came and he went and he got his check. I think. And I went and I said, Dad, you know, that really you've got to agree with me that man is a crook why did you give him money he smiled and looked at me and he said you know I know he's a crook but you know something if I don't give him who'll give him so I said at that, from that moment on I never argued with my father about that because one thing I do appreciate about my parents is I never asked them for anything like I said I always believed it's money he, no one's worked harder than, than he has if you want to give it to to a bird farm, it's up to him. We lost a lot of money uh, in trading, obviously giving people credit, and some some to, let's say, bad friends, to put it mildly, and sometimes really the friends hurt you more than the clients. Okay, So at that stage, we decided to close the business in 1984. At, at that stage, we lost, I think, 32 million Hong Kong in, in debt, and so uh, they wanted to close the company because I was only a manager, the owners were the four brothers, the four eldest brothers. So they said they're going to close it and pay off the banks, and that's it. And I said, wait a minute. And at, at that time, I had probably $30,000 in savings. It's not that my father didn't pay me. He paid me $3,000 or something, but he paid for everything else. you know. And money was never important to me, to be honest with you. I just wanted to be with my dad. So when they closed the business, I said, listen, I knew that now I think I could do a better job in running the business. The choice was I could open my own business and do it, but what did I? What would I achieve? I want. Remember my. Maybe I'm a little bit of an ego, my egomaniac, or maybe I like to put myself, uh, stress myself, and I think that's my character. So I said, "Listen, I'll buy the company." They all laughed at me. Why you want to buy the company? We'll give it to you. No, I said I want to buy it. You don't have the money. I said, but I'll pay you. So how will you pay me? I said, as a manager, I feel responsible. You guys made the final decision, and I've, and I've said no to many of the clients, but never mind. I still have some responsibility. I'll pay you one-third of the losses, 11, 11 million, something like that. So they said, they all laughed, but they said, okay, no problem. You know, Indian philosophy is my son, you know, why worry about it, you know? So how did I pay it? How could I do it? 
They had to clear the overdraft for the bank. Was uh, was thirty something million. So eleven million, I told them, leave it in overdraft, and I'll pay the principal down and the interest to carry the overdraft. Very cocky. I thought I would clear in one year. It took me two years, but a hundred percent cleared it. Then I went to my uncle and said, "I hope you understand that I wanted to prove myself." And I, okay, I paid eleven million dollars, but I proved to my family that I'm, I'm contribute. I can I can be independent and I'm com- competent. And God's good. I made money. I, I can tell you, I had bullets shot at me in, in Panama. I can. I'm going to one day write my book, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But I don't want my uncle to read it because somebody may not appreciate it. But maybe one day I'll write my book. Yesterday, I knew how to smile. Yesterday, it took a little while, but yesterday's gone. Got no, and I can't go without my woman. When David Harilila turned 50. He decided to focus his attention on giving back to the community, and he did this through a large amount of charity work. Some of those charities were formed in honor of his own parents, such as the George Harilila Foundation, or the Kanyadan Charity, which pays for the weddings of poor women in India. David is an active member of the Rotary Club here in Hong Kong, but the one charity that is closest to his heart is something that he has recently created. It's called the One Award. The one I started when I was Rotary Governor. Rotary Governor means I look after a certain area. I look after, at that time, I think about sixty-nine clubs in Hong Kong, Macau, and Mongolia. It's the highest position you can get in the area. But the governor is one year, and I tried to had a very great inspiration from the international leader who was Kalyan. It happened to be Kalyan uh, uh, Kalyan Banaji, an Indian also, but he had a phenomenal phenomenal philosophy, and he asked us to embrace humanity. And he asks us to embrace humanity. That means give back to life by by his symbols of three hearts. He says, "The duty of every person is to first of all love yourself and your family, take the purest part of your body, which is your heart, and love that people around you, and take that love to the next level, and love your community, and take it to a further level to love the world." So I, he really, really inspired me so much so that I want to do something for humanity, and. Then I came up with the idea of of the one. The one is the search for the Mother Teresa of tomorrow today. Okay, I've never met Mother Teresa. I haven't had the pleasure. I know we've made donations, and my sister has been to see Mother Teresa. I think not one or two. I don't know how many times. But she always tells the stories to me, my elder sister. And it's what a wonderful, what a wonderful, powerful woman. When uh, when when my sister brought donations from Hong Kong, she said, "Oh my God, it's a miracle." You walked in today. I picked up thirty children. Street children, I don't have enough money, and thank God you've come. So that story always stuck in my head. He was a great giant. He was a here was a great giant of humanity. And can you imagine how much more she could do if she was totally visible? She wasn't visible. She was more visible in the last stages of her life to the world. How much more could we help? How much more could we do to the, for the silent angels? So. The one concept came into my mind. It was refortified by a story I heard of Doctor Hendrik 
Mubin. <laughs> See, I'm getting old. Mm-hmm. Dr. Hendrik Mubin, I've never met the man, but somebody came to my Rotary Club and talked about him. And he's a doctor who left uh, Germany and went to South Africa because he wants to help people in Africa. As you know, I mean, we all know it. The pictures you see of, of, of poverty and pain in Africa, I think, dwarf anything else. So he went there and he wanted, his purpose was to help. He wanted to give back to the community. But he joined this uh, private hospital and basically he couldn't look after any patients who didn't have insurance. He had to turn away several of his black patients against his will because he couldn't do anything. He even offered to pay pay for the for the shirt. But the hospital said, our philosophy is we're insurance based on insurance. There's no insurance you can't. And these patients that he saw died. He was very, very frustrated. He, he said, I didn't come to Africa to see people die. I came to Africa to help them live a better life. So he left, he joined the United Nations and he worked in Nambia and he was surprised by the amount of money they paid because he was paid something like seven or 8,000 US dollars plus a house, plus a car. And he said, but I'll do that job because I can do my own good, use the money and open my own sort of clinic and a supper. And he did that. He did just that. He helped anybody, uh, free medicine, free medical, uh, didn't matter if you were a thief, a prostitute, a pimp, or anything. And that area had a lot of drug people and a lot of pimps. So he was threatened by them all the time because, they, because he was obviously trying to convert the people. you know. But the strangest, the most uh, unique thing about why he left a scar in my brain, maybe, uh, was that he one day walked home and was mugged by one of his ex-patients. Now, uh, that's a very... Uh, by, by our standard of living is something we can't conceive but when you have tremendous poverty anything is possible so this happened to the man and uh, so what do you think the man did did he pack up and go home he carried on the next day so he had developed the vision of the one to honor that special individual who dedicates every day of his life every single day of his life to make the world better for somebody else and I could give an example that would be like Mother Teresa. It doesn't have to be a nurse. It doesn't be an angel. It could be anybody. And thus we set the framework for doing the one. Now in Rotary, and I wanted to, being loving, loving, love. I love Rotary because we carry our own overhead. If you give me $100, we'll, we'll give $100. Or we'll give back 93 or 94 Most cases, we'll give back 100 So this, like I said, it follows my philosophy of being the maximum good for the maximum people. So I wanted to do to give something back to Rotary because it opened my heart to doing more. When I saw when I when I paid three thousand dollars US for a child's operation, hold and heart operation in Beijing, when I went there, I'm Shanghai, I think it was. When I went there, I almost uh, couldn't believe it. But that was a glow. I got my glow. The glow was I got to play God for two minutes. Three thousand dollars you can save a life. How many of us can do that? So David, what would be your parting words or your words of advice? to sort of the younger generation of today who wants to be somebody like David Harilila. Do it. Change your do it to done. That's a problem with, with most people today. They think about it. They're lost. They want to make money the quickest way they can do it. I don't think there's any shortcut to success. Every great businessman has, has gone through hard times, has worked hard. And I worry that many people feel that life's Life owes them. I think life owes me nothing. I owe life so much. And when people start to think like that and they start to work hard, 
and contribute. And of course, think outside the box. Absolutely. Absolutely impossible. Go with your heart. Go with your passion. If the passion be music, let him go. But make sure you tell him that he's got to be self-sufficient. Given the criteria, by all means, if you want, if you want to carry music as an art, you make sure you can, you can, you can support yourself in it. Otherwise, you fail. Not only me, you fail yourself, which is even more important. I think follow your heart. You got to follow your heart. And been listening to Yanto Yan, episode two, of course, produced and presented by Renita Mahocha Hora. Back at the same time next Sunday here on Radio 3.